0: Amen, thank you so much praise team. That was awesome. We love, watch this, I'm gonna preach the whole time to music. Okay. <laughs> we love Christmas in, in our house. Um, my kids are at an age where, where Christmas comes with a ton of excitement and if all of you can relate to that. Uh, whether it be when you were young or maybe you have uh, school-aged children right now. But so we do a lot to anticipate and to celebrate the coming of Christmas season. So we have wish lists written on whiteboards and multiple notebooks scattered throughout the house and every day there's something new added to the wish list. Um, Sherry worked her tail off yesterday in the snow to decorate the outside of the house and I bought extra, extra lights this year to try to complete the look. And so there's a ton of anticipation. There's a ton of um, preparing your hearts and celebrating and talking of the different traditions that your families do in anticipation for December 25th, for Christmas. And, you know, my, my kids know that Christmas is the birth of Jesus. It's, it's when we celebrate the coming of God in the form of a man, Jesus Christ. And there are certainly dangers in our culture uh, to, be, to be caught up in consumerism and to be caught up in the materialism, uh, whether it be uh, such a focus on, on the gifts that you start to lose sight of everything else or perhaps the relationship. Uh, perhaps you're one that, that, that frets and panics about getting the gifts and what you're going to get every person and it starts to kind of rob you uh, of, of joy. Or maybe you have to host a lot of different parties and anxiety starts to set in. All these things that can, um, you know, Satan's always, always attacking. And so there's these different things that I think we are wise to be on guard about during this season. Uh, however, uh, I don't want that to rob from the celebration. Because as, as, as we grow more towards our affections and love for God, as, as our kids grow up, um, eventually, they will become more excited about the greatest gift of Christmas, Jesus, than the rest of the gifts. But for now, that's totally okay. Because I, I want them to recognize and, and acknowledge what all the fuss is about. Uh, that I love the fact that, in some ways, I see, I see God during Christmas getting his glory even in spite of everything else. That the whole world gets turned upside down and exp- expresses a ton of energy, um, focus, and money, even though sometimes it's directed towards ourselves, I think it's this little way that says, deep within the core of everybody is this longing for God. And, and during this time and during this season when we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, um, we all get a little bit closer to celebrating, even though some people don't even know what it is, um, it's God. And so I think Christmas is a time that we, that we embrace and uh, that we... Why? Why do we embrace this? Why do we, why do we take on such extravagant celebration? Even though God, uh, when Christ was on earth, he certainly set aside some things, he certainly set aside comforts and materialism. There's many times in scripture where he calls us to extravagance. Uh, when he makes wine, he makes way more than he needs. Uh, when, we, when he calls us to um, feast, there's many times old Jewish traditions, they, they, would, they would feast for, for a week. The, te- the temple was elaborate with gold and jewels and all kinds of things. And, and for me, Christmas, uh, plenty of warnings, but I think there's a green light to say, hey, um, drink and drink a lot. Um, what, Tom asked if he could drink the science experiment. <laughs> Anybody else catch that? Yeah, okay, all right. Well, he's, he's ready to celebrate. I think that, that's what that means. Um, I, want, I want us to know. I want as a church family to know. I want my kids to know the reason that we, we celebrate with such extravagance is because Jesus is the most grand, glorious, majestic person that ever walked the face of the earth, that Jesus is God, that he sustains us now, and he is worthy of every bit of praise and energy and focus we can give him. And so as we enter Advent season... At this age of history, this era in time is kind of a, I think, a pretty cool era where Advent basically means coming. It means arrival. And so now we get to be in this, um, they call it the age of the Christian church or the age of grace or the age of tension, where we are in the middle of Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. So we're going to talk today a little bit about Advent for us can... can can have both sides where we look back and we celebrate what has come and what he has done and we look forward to what is coming. Uh, Pastor Ben's uh, little study guide, he wrote this in there. Amongst all the good things we enjoy, the greatest treasure at Christmas is the coming of Jesus. It's a time of expectation and longing for the Savior's coming. You see, before Christmas came, the Jewish people had um, lots of anticipation for the coming of the Messiah. They had been told by by prophecy, uh, by the people of God and the mouthpieces of God that the Messiah, the Savior, would come that would make everything right for them. And so, even though they weren't exactly sure what that looked like, there was eager waiting and kind of on the lookout to see who... This would be and and what he would be like and what is their what is their redemption what does their resurrection look like as a people now that Christ has come in the birth of Jesus we get the opportunity and we do this right during Christmas we we look back and we we retell the story of Jesus Christ being born in a manger where the the God of the universe became a man and took on the form of a baby. We have a couple little ones out here. And that blows my mind every time I look at a little baby. And think, God decided to become that. Fully, totally dependent. And that was, the, that was his rescue plan for us. That we look back on not just the birth of Jesus, but the purpose of his birth. That he became a man to do what he couldn't do as God, I suppose. And that's to die in my place. To live a life of perfect obedience to the Father, of pure, total holiness, so that he would be a qualified substitute for a life that I have messed up so much I need someone else's to count. We observe how Jesus lived on earth and how he interacted with people, and we get a picture of what love looks like. And so during Christmas, as we look back and we, we ponder what it would be like as, as Mary um, nurses God and, and we look and we, we, we contemplate the gospel and as Jesus is raised up in the Jewish traditions all the while keeping an eye out for the cross that he knows is coming where he dies in our place and he takes on our sin so that we may never taste it And then he explodes from the grave in the resurrection that we celebrate. And he says, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, that's new life. He brings us with him. And then he ascends into heaven and he's seated at the throne of God. And here we sit waiting for the second Christmas, the second coming. So part of Advent for us during this time is looking back and celebrating and recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. If you open your Bibles to Mark, chapter two, we're gonna look at kind of the context of this scripture and how things have changed since then. And the setting in the book of Mark, if some of you will remember, that Peter is the first-hand witness who lived life with Jesus and he is orating this to his friend Mark and Mark is writing this down, inspired by the Holy Spirit um, to, to give us the scriptures. And there's a theme in Mark. It's, it's a fast-paced, hard-hitting gospel that touches on the highlights, doesn't go as deep into the interpersonal things as some of the other gospels. And the agenda that Mark has, or the Holy Spirit threw Mark to his audience, is basically to declare Jesus Christ as the awaited Messiah. Messiah means Savior. And so he's giving us examples when Jesus acted like a Messiah would act where the Son of God comes and he has authority over nature. He has authority over sickness and disease. He has authority over unclean spirits. He claims to be the Savior. And so this piece of scripture that we're getting ready to read that's going to talk about fasting is set in that context. And so there's still this common and and push that Mark has. It says, don't miss the first point here. Jesus is the Messiah. So, read with me. Chapter 2 of Mark, verse 18, says this. Now John's disciples, as John the Baptist, and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's are not? Jesus answered them, how can the guests of the groom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. Verse 22, and no one pours new wine into an old wineskin, otherwise the wine will burst the skin, and both the wine and the wineskin will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskin. So again, I think the first point that Jesus is making where he's talking about a wedding, and he's talking about um, fabric, and he's talking about wine, the first point he's making is, I am the awaited groom. Where it was once appropriate for people to fast as they longed for and waited for the coming of the Messiah. And his first declaration is, I am he. So it's no longer fitting, or it's no longer appropriate, it's no longer the time to fast. The second point is he's saying things have changed. Like our object lesson. Jesus Christ entered the scene and what used to be is not quite the same. Now God is the same and his grace towards people is the same. But the way that we understand that, the way that we relate to that is different. Now that Christ has come, Jesus is proclaiming that what once was is no longer fitting now. And so because Jesus came, it says he fulfilled the law. What the law demanded in the old covenant, grace has supplied in the new covenant. So he's giving us these different examples to usher us into or to answer rather the question of why do your disciples not fast? He's saying right now the Messiah, the Savior is with them, so this is a time for feasting. It makes sense then. What about for us? Let's look at the context of how Jesus answered fasting. Basically, we're gonna define fasting as the voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. And in the Old Testament, I found basically one command to fast, and that's in Leviticus. Uh, During the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16.29, it says, during the Day of Atonement, you shall afflict yourself, and that meant fast from food. The rest of the time in the Old Testament, it was all voluntarily. And most of the time, if not all the time, it was accompanied with, or triggered by, a heart of mourning, a time of distress, or of deep anguish. So you may say um, voluntary fasting in the Old Testament expressed a mournful and urgent seeking of God in distressing circumstances few examples in 2 Samuel David fasted and wept while his child was dying in the book of Esther the Jews fasted when they were threatened with annihilation in Jonah we just read right when even Nineveh the pagans they fasted when Jonah um, declared to them judgment was coming or King Darius when he was kind of tricked to send Daniel to the lion's den and he, he loved Daniel says he went home and he fasted what's going on there There's internal heartache, internal distress, and internal anguish that they basically just expressed in a a physical and in an external way. Fasting was an outward expression of an inward reality of a shattered heart. Again, it was an urgent response of repentance and great humility. It was seeking deliverance from a gracious God in profoundly desperate situations. So if that's the context of Old Testament fasting, you realize when Jesus comes, he says, why would my disciples fast when I'm here? This isn't a time of anguish and distress. This is a time to celebrate because the Messiah has come and he walks among you. God with us, Emmanuel. Now we know at our time, and Jesus makes hint of it, there will be a time when anguish and trials will come. When the the Messiah will be taken away from them physically. And in that time they will fast. Certainly there's, there's evidences of even, remember Jesus fasted for 40 days before starting his public ministry. Paul fasted after his conversion. Some of the early church leaders in the book of Acts fasted. Um, before being sent out so there's there's a place and time for all these things and so the question for us is what about at this time when we are in the age of grace we are under the new covenant and the way that we deal with God is is through the person of Jesus Christ is there a place and a time for us to fast either as individuals or as a church and I and I think there is I think there's a place that that maybe God is calling us that may be appropriate to fast And I'm just going to share a couple couple situations or a couple approaches that I see during this time that that could be appropriate that God might be leading us. One, I think, is very much in line with the Old Testament practice. I think there's many times that in life we know we still have pain, we still have suffering, we still have a broken heart. And I think in those times, um, God may lead you to fast to express that. I can think of situations where God God breaks your heart for other people, something that they're going through. And so it might be appropriate to fast perhaps from food as you intercede for that person or those people. That Because of their situation and the dire needs that they have, we we go without to remind ourselves, very physically something that you can feel that I want to go before God on behalf of my brother and my sister. So I think there's times maybe it's because of my own sin that you have grief and you have sorrow because of something that you have done. Uh, Perhaps it's an addiction or or a stronghold that continues to grab onto you and, and you continue to struggle against it. So fasting might be a way that you express that broken heart to God, express that repentance, express that humility saying, God, I'm desperate for you to intervene for me. And this is my way, not necessarily to appease you, but it's my way to align my body with the deep desire of my heart that says, I'm humble and I need you. Please remove this thorn from me and deliver me from this. In these kind of fastings, it could be, it's, it's likely to be very spontaneous. These aren't probably planned, disciplined fasts. These are one where you feel the heartbreak and the pain because of the news or because of the sin, and so you engage and enter into fasting to to promote prayer and turning towards God. But a second way I think might be appropriate for us to fast, and, and perhaps this is what I might encourage and challenge us as a church family to do together, because things are always easier to do together. And that is where we fast as a discipline in order to lead our hearts to desire the right thing. Our culture talks a lot about following your heart. And most of the time I think what they mean by that is, do whatever seems natural. Do whatever you want to do. Do whatever that strong desire is. And I think there's a lot of danger in following your heart if that's what we mean. Because my heart oftentimes wants evil things. My heart oftentimes wants very selfish things and it's there's a tension within me that some wants good and some wants bad right and i don't think i'm alone i think god calls us as christians to lead our heart and what i mean by that is by the grace of god scripture says that those who have put their faith in the forgiveness of jesus received his holy spirit and it says that he has taken out my heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh replaced it with a heart that is inclined towards worshiping god See, we are worshiping beings. We are created beings designed to want, desire, long for, and worship something. And so we're always worshiping something. So I believe fasting may be a discipline that says, God has inclined my heart to himself, so I'm going to train my heart to want the right thing. I'm going to train my heart to want Jesus more than everything else. Because in my life, there's a lot of things that threaten to take full allegiance of my heart. There's a lot of things that I turn to for comfort when I should probably turn to Jesus. There's things that occupy much space in our mind. And as they are being occupied, it's occupied less by affection towards Jesus. So I think fasting may be a way that we remind ourselves of who and what we were made and born to worship. It's a way where we tell our heart, we say, this is the direction that we're going to go because this is the truest part of me. My identity and my life is hidden in God and I was created to worship him above and before all things. So I am going to prioritize those things in my life by saying no to some of those things that tempt me to become the ultimate thing. Or fasting may be a way to keep secondary things secondary and the primary person primary. C.S. Lewis defines temperance as going the right length and no further. And so the discipline of fasting may be a way to make sure we are going the proper length in the gifts that God, or the people, or the things that God has given us, but we're not taking them farther than we are meant to. You remember in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And then he goes on in verse 12 to say, I will not be enslaved by any of those things. Or in Matthew 6, when Matthew's talking about um, money and God, and he finishes that little bit by saying you can't serve two masters. So our hearts very much are inclined to worship and, and gang, we, we will worship a lot of different things. We call them idols when they're not God. And they rob and they steal and they make us their slave. And so fasting may be a physical, external way to guide and direct our hearts into wanting and longing for the right thing. It's intentionally wanting Jesus more than everything else. It's demonstrating control over some of our fleshly appetites. Also in the study book on this series, Ben, Pastor Ben writes this, when he's talking about uh, the birth of his three sons and then the day of his salvation, he says those are the four most memorable moments of my life Uh, and he and he says this everything else during those days everything else paled in value and importance to what was happening on these days this means I gave up precious things like sleep or food or work and entertainment so that I could be fully present in those days I traded valuable things for something of even greater value and joy And so Advent many times is associated with fasting. But as a church, we aren't talking about just mechanically passing over food just for some spiritual sake that we don't understand. If we're gonna do this as a couple, if God leads you to set something aside for a period of time, then do it to prioritize your heart and direct and lead your heart to wanting the right thing. Different things that... that I've seen us as a culture use in unhealthy ways. The, the two that scripture pulls out, one uh, far and away the most is, is food. Uh, because it, it sustains us and Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And everyone has a relationship with food, we're all dependent and desperate for it. And so you see in the scriptures a way that we're all gonna feel this, right? This is gonna, this is gonna hit all of us. And so he says, that might be something good to lay aside because you're gonna embark on humility because of that. Now when you do, Jesus says, do it in secret but he doesn't tell us exactly how to do it. Perhaps for you, it's, uh, it's social media. Maybe you get too much out of that. Maybe it takes too much of your time, or it grabs too much of your identity or your peace. Maybe it's, maybe it's some specific food. Maybe it's some specific drink. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's anything that you find your brain thinking on over and over and over and over. Generally, it's probably the thing that kind of you get the most uncomfortable about giving up right now The thing that kind of makes you squirm in your seat and you kind of want to kick that away That might be something that isn't necessarily bad But it might be something that keeps trying to sit on the throne of your heart When God says it's not going to work You got to get rid of all other lovers because I am your groom Maybe it's fantasy football or sports center I don't know what it is for you but just go before God and ask, is there anything that you want me to lay aside simply to declare my urgent need for you to intervene for me, to keep my affections in line? During this time, the second part and the beauty of Advent, again, for us, is not just what we look back and celebrate, but we look forward and anticipate. So just like all of us are anticipating December 25th in our various ways, we have an opportunity to anticipate the second Christmas, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the time where he doesn't come as the lamb to be slain on our behalf, but the time where he comes as the lion to make all things right. You guys have heard me, if you've been here long, you've heard me speak about this before. Not long ago in Romans 8, it unpacks this glorious picture where all of creation groans for its redemption. And that redemption is going to take place when Jesus Christ comes. And everything that is broken in this world, everything that is wrong, will be made right. One of my favorite ways to describe this Is that Jesus first stepped in and he starts from the inside and he works his way out? He took that which was ultimately broken, my sinful heart, and he cleansed it. And he came and he took up residence by the Holy Spirit inside my heart. And so, deep down within my spirit, I am clean, I am complete. But yet, my mind is in process and my desires are still in process, my emotions are in process. And so he's working that completion from the inside and is coming out. And he's teaching me to think like Jesus and renewing my mind. And he's teaching me to desire the things that God desires, to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And he's teaching me how to interact with you in love. And so, as that is starting to work itself out of me, one day it will be proper where my heart's desires will be right, where I will celebrate with you and your victories as much as I celebrate with me and my victories now. Then it doesn't stop there. He touches my body, and he glorifies my body. And he glorifies your body. And when you wake up on cold days and your knees hurt it, they won't hurt anymore. Lucille was sitting in the front row because her hearing's going, and she can hear me there. She'll be able to hear me from who knows how far away. I'm going to play basketball again. We're going to celebrate But it starts here and that's been completed and so we look back and we praise God for what he's done. But we look forward with great anticipation for the next Christmas where everything, even our surroundings will finally be as they were meant to be. We won't have any fender benders in the parking lot of our church from the ice. I don't know what that'll be like. Or maybe we'll be like, who cares? Touch it and it'll appear better, I don't know. So for us, there's this beauty of anticipating the second coming where we recognize my inside has been complete and so I celebrate that but I anticipate where all things will be complete. That's Advent. That's the arrival. That's the coming. There's times in this life that I struggle to be thankful for every circumstance in every situation, and I'm sure you do as well. And I know I'm called to enter into thanksgiving in all things, but I think God kind of is gracious to me, and he says those days where you just can't get your heart to be thankful for what you have, you can be thankful for what you will have. And that is a huge difference maker. And so those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ forever have a hope, forever have a longing, forever anticipate. And we have so many good things now. And so as we enter into Christmas season, let us celebrate what God has done for us and let us anticipate what God will do and let us recognize that all of this is contingent, on the person of Jesus Christ. That it is for him and by him and through him that we make claim on any of these promises, that we have been brought to new life, that we can look forward, that we can look back. It is all about Jesus. It's the same every Sunday, isn't it? It's the same every day. And so as Tom comes up and encourages us, once again, to align our hearts to want the right and proper thing, to worship, Jesus, I want you to engage your heart in this song and spend some time thinking about if there's anything that is trying to pry your heart's ultimate allegiance from the one who is worthy of all praise. And as we enter into Christmas and you engage in all of your traditions and you give gifts, let us exalt and magnify Jesus so the first thing is always first. stand and sing that again, say, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim.